parable of the prodigal son, and we saw how that story in some ways uh, uh, echoes some of the, the, the struggle with earthly pleasures that the preacher of Ecclesiastes wrestles with. What matters in this life? What are we supposed to do with eating and drinking and pleasure and work and all these other things that we occupy ourselves with uh, here in this life? We saw how this, this rebellious son takes his share of the inheritance and he's convinced that, that drinking and partying and having fun are going to give his boring little life meaning and value. Instead, what he discovers is that that money runs out really quickly. And, and that partying doesn't really gain him anything. And when that, when that son returns back to his father's house, he's amazed that his father just lavishes him with, with all these good things, expensive clothes and a ring on his finger and, and a huge party. And th- through that example of his father, the son learns to receive these good things from his father's hand with, with gratitude and appreciation. He learns that things like eating and drinking and Celebrating have their place in our lives, but again, they are not the meaning of life. They aren't supposed to be worshipped or idolized. The things of this world should be used to enhance our relationship with our Father. The story of the prodigal son is just a great reminder of God's grace and God's love to us. We have been, all of us have been estranged from the Father because of our sin. We all wander. We all search for meaning, often in meaningless places. And we are all welcomed back with open arms when we return back to God through faith in Jesus. But the story of the prodigal son, it's, I don't think it's primarily about the younger son. I don't, I don't think that's the main reason why Jesus tells the parable. And it isn't, it isn't even really primarily about the Father's love and acceptance and grace, although that's obviously a prominent theme. Now, I really, I think the key moral of the story comes at the end with the older son. This older son who's, who's been the good one, right? The faithful son. Always been responsible, always obeyed and done whatever the father told him to do. This, this f- foolish, wasteful, arrogant son, this brother of mine has disgraced the family, has dishonored you, our father, and has caused us all grief. And, and we all knew this was going to happen. We're not even surprised. We knew he was going to go out there and waste it all and ruin his life. We saw it coming. And now, now that he comes crawling back home, Dad, you just welcome him with open arms? You give him nice clothes and you throw him a big, huge party? You've never even given me like a young goat, let alone the the prized calf. Like, I've never had that. And I've, I've always been good. But when this, when this son of yours came back, who devoured your wealth with prostitutes, 
You, you kill the fatted calf for him. That's not fair. That is not fair. It's like you're rewarding him for doing all these bad things. And it's like you're punishing me. Because if you're going to reinstate him back into the family, guess whose inheritance gets cut in half again? That is not fair. That's not cool. The father says to him, son, you've always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. But this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and he's been found. Oh, that, that perspective can be a convicting thing, right? The younger son, we know that he idolized money and pleasure and partying over the relationship with his father. And, and it almost killed him. In the end, this younger son learns that, that earthly possessions and having fun, that, that's not the meaning of life. But this older son, his, his response, his reaction reveals something very dark and ugly. It reveals that this older son also idolizes money and possessions and wealth. He's every bit as greedy as his younger brother. He doesn't think he is, but he is every bit as selfish. He's just taken a different approach to acquiring his wealth. He's just being patient. I'll be, I'll be good so that the father will bless me. But his, his anger at his dad over this perceived injustice shows that he cares more about this fatted calf than he does about his dad. It shows how little he trusts his father. This, this selfishness bubbles to the surface and we see the things that he truly loves. He doesn't care that his brother, who was as good as dead, is alive now. He doesn't really care about that. And he doesn't care that his dad, who no doubt has been moping for years, is finally rejoicing. He doesn't care about that either. I, I think we are never more like this greedy, selfish older brother than when we shake our fist at God and say, God, that's not fair. Here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and 4, the preacher turns his attention to investigate these things in life that often seem so unfair to us. And, And the goal really is to try and help us Regain some perspective, just like that father was trying to help his old son regain perspective. These words are written to help us make sense of a world that so often seems just out of whack. But here's here's the problem. Solomon, wisest guy that ever lived, right? Smartest man ever was given, uh, granted this wish from God of, of supernatural wisdom. 
writes all of these Proverbs. And these Proverbs are written to help us live life in a way that's healthy and successful and prosperous and good. So he tells us, here's the secret to life. Here's how you can succeed in life. And he writes things like Proverbs 3.9. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. The fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. The Lord tears down the proud man's house, but keeps the widow's boundaries intact. Or this one, train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. The King Solomon who wrote these Proverbs says, do these things and everything in your life will be great. But the King Solomon who writes Ecclesiastes says, oh, wait a minute. What my eyes see is that sometimes people who honor the Lord wind up with empty barns and dry wine vats. That doesn't seem fair. Sometimes the wicked live a long, long time and the righteous have their lives cut short. That doesn't seem fair. Sometimes it seems like the proud man's house is the one that prospered and the widow is the one that gets cheated out of her boundaries. Sometimes I've seen with my eyes that even when a child is trained up in the way that they should go, when they get old, they wander far from it. These things are not fair. Over and over again, he points out the things in this world that his own eyes have seen and our eyes have seen them too. things that that our happy Christian explanations for these injustices are just short, they're lame. I I love what what this book, uh, it's out on the foyer, you can get it. I love what Zach Eswine uh, has to say. It says, if someone were to say to him, the things you talk about should not happen. It's as if he says, no, they shouldn't, but they do. So now what? Therefore, without question, Ecclesiastes regularly points out things that many people in the church prefer not to acknowledge. The preacher does not stick to the rules of what should be, but addresses the exceptions to account for what is. That's what he's going to do here in this second part of chapter 3. Chapter 4. I, th- I think that's the reason why this book of the Bible is so incredibly relevant through every age and why this book feels particularly real. Be- because again, it does ask hard questions. 
And it points out that life isn't always neat and clean and happy and, and as polished as we sometimes want to pretend that it is, especially in church. This book of the Bible is real because real people ask questions like, why do bad things happen to good people? And why is there so much evil in this world if there is a good God who is in control? And what? Why is this place like it is? Why is it so messed up? And how do we navigate life when these rules for living don't always guarantee success? I like Eswine says that the uh, Proverbs are a lot like meteorology, giving us indicators to predict the outcomes of, of the weather. And Ecclesiastes is like the actual weather. Fickle and unpredictable. There are certain things that we can and should do to prepare for an upcoming storm. And those things are good. But then there's the difficult task of assessing the damage after the storm and figuring out how to clean up the mess. That's the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness. And in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. For a time for every matter and every deed is there. I said to myself, concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath. There's no advantage for man over beast. All is vanity. All go to the same place. All come from the dust and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for this is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? In this world, the preacher sees with his own eyes injustice. In the place where justice is supposed to be, he finds wickedness. In the place where there should be righteousness, there's evil instead. Like a, like a, like a referee who shows favoritism to one team, or a judge who takes bribes, or a politician who uses their power for uh, financial and political gain. This world is full of examples of injustice. And there are places that should be safe, places that should be a refuge, places where we should expect to get fair treatment. But sin and selfishness makes those who are supposed to defend and protect people into users and thieves. 
I think maybe this is why things like, like sexual abuse and immortality, uh, immorality on the part of clergy is so repugnant to us, right? Because that's supposed to be a place that's safe. They're supposed to be pillars of righteousness, not predators taking advantage of the weak. I had this professor in seminary who I looked up to and respected as a man of honor and virtue. It came out that he'd been having an affair with the student. And it made me angry and confused and frustrated. These things should not be. They are. Doesn't God see? Like, doesn't he care? Why doesn't he just enact swift justice, immediate justice, right? Like, take care of those people right away. Like, as soon as a politician lies, their tongue should just fall right out, right? As soon as a crooked judge touches bribe money, their hands should just fall right off. As soon as a, as a philandering clergyman uh, is, is unfaithful with his wife, he should also have things fall off. <laughs> right? Immediate justice. Wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't that... The only problem is that then you and I would also have to live in that world. We too would be subject to the same swift punishment whenever we lied or cheated or got angry or lusted. If we lost every part of our body that was used for injustice, there would be no parts of us left, right? We want swift justice for others, but, but we want God's patience and grace for us. But God is long-suffering with everyone. There will be a time for judgment. If we jump, jump down to, to chapter 4 here, the preacher sees something else that's unfair. It says, and I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. Behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. There are those who have power, who have money and who have authority and who have control. And then there's those who don't. It's important for us to understand at this point that authority isn't evil. God created this world with order and authority preloaded into it. God created male and female and said to them, you're supposed to go and rule over the fish and the birds and every living thing on the earth. God created Eve as a suitable helper for Adam. God gave them the job of tending the garden. But but power in the hands of fallen and sinful people, it always goes wrong. 
If you take any, any kind of power, any kind of authority, and, and remove love, and add selfishness and greed, you're always going to end up with oppression. Power corrupts, right? Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Power makes us think that we're more important than we really are. Power gives us the sense of entitlement. And having, having just a little bit of power makes us hungry for more. And when we read this, I think a lot of times we're tempted to think about like a big evil ruler or dictator. This is like a Hitler or a, or, or like a, like a Napoleon or like a, like a Castro, somebody that's taking advantage of the average people while they sit in luxury. This, this isn't, this doesn't apply to us. We're not oppressors. Right? But I think every single one of us, every one of us in this room has been given some degree of authority. We are all in danger of using that authority to oppress others. If you work at a job where you have other people under you that you manage, how do you treat them? Do you take credit for their work? Do you ridicule and demean them as a management technique? Do you have unfair or unrealistic expectations that you set for them? If you're a parent, do you exasperate your children? Are you always yelling and always frustrated and always disappointed with them? Are you inconsistent with your punishments and sparse with your praise? If you're, if you're a, a student, how do you treat your siblings or your underclassmen? If you're gifted as an athlete or in music or in the arts, how do you treat those who aren't as talented as you are? If you're a husband... Do you love your wife in a sacrificial way, in a, in a Christ-like way? Or are you always demanding that she submit to you? If you're wealthy, do you use your wealth to bless others, or do you use it to control others? The solution to oppression is built into his observations here in Ecclesiastes. He says twice, They had no one to comfort them. When you find yourselves in possession of any kind of power or authority, make sure that you use that authority to help and to bless and to comfort others. Not to oppress them. And whenever you see any kind of oppression, you do whatever you can to provide comfort and relief. It's almost though, as though the tragedy, the real tragedy that the preacher of Ecclesiastes sees is not that there's people who are oppressed, but that there's no one there to comfort them. He's not done. He opens his eyes again and says, I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. 
Now, this too is vanity and a striving after wind. At this point, it seems like he's, he's turning his attention from talking about these, these acts of injustice to really digging deeper, like really looking more at the, the motivation for things like injustice and oppression. And the first motivating factor is rivalry. Envy, keeping up with the Joneses. It's that the same root problem underlies it. This love and desire for earthly and, and temporary things. And here he reveals that so often the motives that drive our unjust actions are a desire to look just as good as the other people around us. We feel like we have to maintain certain appearances. Oh man. This is a hard one, right? Because we, we know he's, he's right. We get it, that this is true. We feel it. All of us feel it in the way that we dress and the things that we drive and the house that we live in. All these different ways we feel this need to fit in. But we can't help it. Like we can't. It's a hard one to fight. It's a hard one to, to realize that we're not really in competition with our neighbors. Or other people. This, this kind of rivalry, though, it, it leads to all kinds of selfishness and oppression and ugliness. Rivalry often motivates us, so does greed. That's the next one he points out. Then I looked again at, at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked. For whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity and a, and a grievous task. Here he sees this Scrooge-like man who's working just, just for the sake of work, and he's making money just to see how big of a ball he can accumulate. Not really caring for other people, not really even enjoying it, just mindlessly striving but never satisfied, never really understanding the whole point of work or pleasure, or family, just greedy. Rivalry and greed certainly motivate a lot of people to do bad things. But there's one more, one more that he mentions here. If you skip down to 14, this, he's come out of prison to become a king, even though he was born in his kingdom. I've seen all living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There's no end to all the people, to all who were before them. Even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. For this too is vanity and a striving after the wind. The, the picture here is of, is of a young king, super popular with the people. Comes up from nothing. Like a, like a real rags to riches story. And, and he's very, very popular for a little while. But eventually people will become discontent with him too. Popularity is meaningless. Envy and rivalry and jealousy and greed and the desire to be popular and well-liked are all dumb reasons for oppressing people and, and acting in an unjust way. 
They're all things that lead to life under the sun being unfair. So what are we supposed to do about that? How do we then react? How do we handle that? How do we counteract the injustice and the impression that we see? First and foremost, I think we need to understand and recognize that God is not silent when it comes to those who act in this way. He's not neutral when it comes to injustice. God is very much against the tyrant and the abuser and the cheat. God hates oppression. And God calls us to be fair. Proverbs 17.15 says, He who justifies the wicked, he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. God calls us then, commands us to be people who are just and kind and comforting and fair. Zechariah 7.9, thus says the Lord of hosts said, dispense true justice, practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Don't be oppressive. Don't be unfair. Instead, strive with all your heart to honor the command found here in Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? That's our calling. That's our responsibility. That's our response to the injustice and the oppression that we see around us. Second, one of the biggest ways that we counteract injustice and oppression is by loving people, comforting the oppressed. And I don't think we can do that. I don't think we will do that if we don't genuinely love others. If we aren't able to love people and see other people the same way that God sees them, as people that were created in his image that have meaning and value, despite all the bad stuff, like if we can't see others that way, there's no way we're going to be able to truly love them. But we need to have this understanding that we need each other, that we need to support each other and help each other and cling together. Not as as rivals, not as enemies, but... But, but his friends, he, he deals with this right here in chapter 4, right? Look at verse 9. He says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls, one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. A life of isolation is not only unhealthy, it's, it's not any fun, right? It's just not, not fun. It's not the way we're supposed to be. And it's so much easier for us to mistreat people when we view them as competition or as obstacles or as objects instead of his, his friends and his brothers and sisters and helpers. 
I know that sometimes we think that we don't need anybody else's help. But not asking for help is selfish and dangerous. And not being there for others who need our help is unloving. We were created for community and relationship. And finally, the last way that we need to respond to this injustice and oppression is by trusting God. The prodigal son, he throws a fit, accuses the father of being unfair and unjust. And there's no doubt, there's no doubt that the actions of the younger brother were wrong. No, nobody's saying that they were okay. But it's just as wrong for this older brother to show disrespect and disdain and distrust to his father. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't trust his father. He doesn't, he doesn't love his brother. He only cares about stuff. If we love people, even people who are sometimes not all that nice, and if we trust God to deal with it, to handle it, to judge in a just and fair way, then we're never going to get upset and shake our fist at God and call Him unfair. We're going to rest in the knowledge that God can work all things together for good and that God will judge. Solomon says, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and every deed is there. There is a time for God's patience and long-suffering, and then there will be a time for God's judgment and justice. There will come a time when God will judge all people, the righteous and the wicked. And that, that truth for us that we see repeated in God's Word is both comforting reassuring, encouraging, and hopefully also kind of terrifying, right? It's comforting to know that even though it seems like the foolish man is prospering in this life, God will eventually judge him. It's comforting to know that those who who seem like they're getting away with perverting justice and doing evil will not get away with it forever. They will be called to give an account for their deeds, It's terrifying, though, because all of us will one day face God, who is the righteous judge. Paul says over in 2 Corinthians 5, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That thought is terrifying. You and I will appear before the judgment seat. There's some that deny that that's ever going to happen. That's not really going to take place. God's just going to like let everybody in to heaven and into the free passes for everyone. And that's a happy thought. But man, that really does undermine God's justice. It's one thing for God to be patient and long-suffering. It's another for God to never judge anyone or hold anyone accountable to their actions. 
We can try and deny that God will judge, but the Bible's pretty clear. Some believe that the standard that God will use in judging is like a, like a, like a balance sheet. As long as our good outweighs the bad things that we do, we're probably going to be okay. As long as we're not as bad as those people, like out there, we're going to be fine. God will let us in. But that's not the standard God uses. The standard he uses to judge us is his own perfect holiness. Anything less than holy and perfect is deserving of death and wrath. And, and we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not one of us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And we all face judgment. When that time comes and we're standing before the judgment seat of Christ, what are we going to say? Are we going to say, like, I really wasn't that bad? Come on. It was okay. Like, I was mostly good. Uh, no, I, I, will, I will not speak of anything that I've done. I'm simply going to cling to Jesus Christ. May I be found in Him. I, I am covered by Christ. Just a few verses later in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our job now. That's our responsibility now as ambassadors is to go out and tell people that you need Jesus Christ. You need to cling to Him. You need to place your faith in Him. That's what, what gains you entrance into heaven. That's what makes you right in the sight of God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And life often seems unfair, and it, and it seems like God isn't doing anything about it. But God has. God has provided the perfect substitute so that we will not be judged based on our sin, but instead we get to be seen clothed in Christ's righteousness. And God has appointed you and I as ambassadors to go out there into this messed up, unfair world and provide comfort to the oppressed and help for the helpless and to preach hope for those who are hopeless. I praise God for what He's given us through Jesus Christ. God, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you that, that it deals with some of these difficult, hard questions that we have as we look around and see that life doesn't always seem fair. 
God, in this world, we recognize that you are in control and that you know what you're doing and that ultimately you will be the righteous judge. We trust you. Even when things are so ugly and so out of place, so broken, we still trust you. I pray, dear God, that you would help us to be those who would provide comfort and hope and peace. Every one of us in this room would use the authority that you've given us in a way that would help encourage and uplift others. That as ambassadors, we would go out and proclaim that there is forgiveness for all of the bad things that we do, for all of the injustice that we take part in. Thank you, God, for giving us Jesus Christ. Thank you for reconciling us back to you. Thank you for all of the ways that you've blessed us. Lord, help us to live lives that bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen.